To begin. Are you watching closely? To begin. Clytus, I'm bored. How to start? What plaything can you offer me today? In Life Itself, a memoir, Roger Ebert begins. I was born inside the movie of my life. I was born a poor black child. The visuals were before me. I was born in it. The audio surrounded me. Molded by it. The plot unfolded inevitably, but not necessarily. I don't remember how I got into the movie, but it continues to entertain me. We all are born with a certain package. We are who we are. Where we were born, who we were born as, how we were raised. We're kind of stuck inside that person. And the purpose of civilization and growth is to be able to reach out and empathize a little bit with other people. And for me, the movies are like a machine that generates empathy. It lets you understand a little bit more about different hopes, aspirations, dreams, and fears. It helps us to identify with the people who are sharing this journey with us. Welcome to the first syllable where, in theory, I'm putting together a screenplay that I had hoped to start writing in August. As I'm recording this, as this episode comes out, it's late August. I haven't started writing it. And because the fall semester is starting, I'm a college teacher, I'm about to get very busy. So we'll continue doing prep. And there's this back of my head feeling that this is going to go the way of some things I've tried to do before with my writing, where, hmm. I think it's an autistic impulse of mine is that I want to know all these behind-the-scenes details before I write the story. And then once I get started into an idea, the idea gets beyond me, where I'm more of a world-builder than a storyteller. I'm also a storyteller, but I'm more of a world-builder, where I want to know everything that's going on. For examples, you have... You don't know any of this stuff, but I'll tell you some things. I tried to find my 3x5 cards of old story ideas from the 90s, but they weren't very well organized, so it was hard to find the ones that were standalone stories to tell you about, things that I never wrote. But the reason I couldn't find the standalone ones is because so many of the ideas had been sort of snowballed into this thing I called the Demon Angel Cycle. Cycle as a collection of stories that go together. Not that there was a motorcycle. <laughs> but before we even get to the Demon Angel Cycle, you have back when I was a teenager, I think is when I first conceived of Diamond Bay. This is when I was reading comic books a lot and reading about superheroes, and I had my idea for this own sort of superhero city. It's called Diamond Bay. It was in California. And I remember some of the superheroes for it. I don't remember what the main team was called, like their team name, but I know members you had, and this word will come up again in a little bit, You had a woman who went under the name Fugue. I don't remember her alter ego, but Fugue and her thing, her power was essentially that she could kind of put people to sleep, but also could control like what people could focus on. So she could alter the way you see things and distract you, sort of like the power of distraction and sleep. She could take people out of a fight. There was Razor Wing, who, because I was, you know, a bit emo, I guess was like if you took Angel from X-Men when he had his you know proper wings and then Angel from X-Men after Apocalypse switched him out with the metal wings and you combine the two. So mine was a winged guy who had been through a serious ordeal and had had half of his parts, like he had part of his leg was now cybernetic, part of an arm was cybernetic, and one wing was entirely cybernetic. And who else was on the team? Shit, I can't remember all of them. I think Fleet was on the team. He was like my version of like Flash or Quicksilver. I don't remember much of a personality for him. I just remember a visual where this drawing I did where his thing was that he's deliberately, his costume involved a lot of loose parts. 
He looked like a Pathfinder hero, where they have all these weird belts and straps and things that hang off in all these strange directions. But his specifically was fast, would make it so he'd be like this long streak of all these cloth bits, which, practically speaking, didn't make much sense if he's going really fast, but whatever, it was cool drawing. And I remember the leader of the team was a guy called The Man. That's all he went by, and I know he had holes in his hands, and that specifically came from, wait a second, did that come before? Interesting. I don't quite remember why he was the way he was, but he always wore a suit. He had really long hair that he always kept in a tight braid, and I think it was somewhat alive, if I remember right. And also he had these holes in his hands that energy could come out, but also they were sort of these holes into another dimension where he could like pull people in or something like that. I forget some of the details. I just remember every time I drew him, he was just this guy in a suit looking kind of cool. I modeled him after a specific panel of an X-Men comic with Magneto wearing this white suit. And I'm like, I like that. It's a good look. There were a bunch of other characters in there, but I don't remember a lot of them. But then that comic book idea, I was never going to do a comic book. I wasn't a good enough artist to draw on a regular basis, and I didn't know how to navigate getting an artist to do it for me. Even though I did have a better comic book idea that I did draw some of 10 years later, called Wannabe Heroes, that starts with 9-11. So that was a decade later. In between, you had Diamond Bay became Diamond Cove. I think the name change came after I'd written several stories set there, but I realized it was only a mile across, and I was going to call it a bay. I mean, this is the entire town is a mile across. So it was Diamond Cove, and I knew where it was. It's right at the north end of San Luis Obispo County, right below Los Padres National Forest. And it was where the Demon Angel cycle happened. Demon Angel was this idea about these sort of extra-Christian mythology, where there are these good and evil creatures that have been around forever, essentially, that kind of latch on to religion and use it to become more like what we think they're going to be. So they became angels and demons because Christianity had dominated over other religions. Religions and even Islam has similar concepts of angels and demons. But then they latch onto these things. And in the middle of it, to kind of keep the peace, is every generation has a person who is assigned an angel and a demon. And this trio that are attached to one another have to kind of keep everyone in line because God is gone. That was coming from Reading Preacher, you know. And Clive Barker's, uh, what's that play called? I know it's like The Devil is on Trial and something. I forget the title. And the book's the other end of the room. But basically, it's an idea from a lot of stories where, like, God abandoned his post and things got weird. So the angels and demons that were left set up this system. And here's where I become a world builder more than a storyteller. I wrote several novels set in this place and around this place. A few screenplays. I know, I think only one screenplay directly connected to that. It was called Rats. The novels were... Let's see, the first one was The Man with the Holes in His Hands, which came from The Man, which The Man came from a specific drawing I did in my early teens, probably, of my own hand, but I put a hole in it. But the hole went to darkness, not through to the other side. And so I turned that into this weird cult where I wanted to take, like, this stereotypical cult sacrificing a virgin thing from, like, weird horror films from the 70s and 80s and stuff and treated it like a real thing. And so this cult in the town of Diamond Cove, Diamond Bay, has this priest who's decided that this one guy is actually the returned Christ, but he wants to control him or kill him. And then he may have picked the wrong guy. Most of that book takes place inside this old church as the cult is meeting and they've imprisoned these two guys. Hilarity ensues. And then there was a book called Bridges 
which was more of a melodrama that happened to have some supernatural stuff in it over a couple generations story where it went back and forth between it it was right after i read it so it's kind of similar setting where it's like 30 years ago in the present how the one story affects the other book called first covenant which was about this guy who has abducted a bunch of children and is using them to dig a hole to a tomb where a demon is buried in the nearby town of Carlton Falls, which is right up river from Diamond Cove. And then came Demon Angel Catharsis, which was the first of, this is where it comes to world building, 13 planned Demon Angel stories. And First Covenant was going to have, I think, seven stories. There's going to be First Covenant, then Second Covenant, the New Covenant, World Covenant? Fuck, I forget the titles now. I have these titles. I could find them because I also had to make a glossary and a character guide, like my own wiki on paper. And it was getting a little unwieldy, and it was stories that I didn't... They would have been better if I hadn't tried to connect them to each other, but I have this tendency to connect things. Even my current D&D campaign, I had a little Easter egg that really I'm the only one would get it, unless players from my previous campaign happen to listen if it ever becomes a podcast, but I don't know if it's going to become a podcast, and that's a whole other problem. But I'm running Curse of Strahd, and at the beginning of it, before they went into Barovia, there was an Easter egg about the current state of affairs in Faerun, and specifically the Utter East, and that came from my previous campaign I had run. I just thought like tying them together. Why not? Keep the continuity up. After I abandoned Diamond Cove and those stories, though I did keep toying with the idea of rewriting The Man with Holes in His Hands and making it good, the writing is awful. But at the time, I was writing daily, and I was getting better. And there was stuff that I wrote later, Guardia stuff. The next thing I did was this fantasy world called Guardia, which also in its way connected to the Diamond Cove stuff, because there was some crossover of characters. But Guardia was this fantasy world. Guardia specifically is a kingdom, not the whole world. The world was called Bast. Then to the east is the Far Range and unknown places beyond. To the west, there's the Estered, Iridia, the Karam, Orm. To the north is Gwal and the Ice Flow. To the south is the Symbolands. And there were a few novels there. The Empress of Time, which was a blatant ripoff of The Wizard of Oz structurally, but not treated so whimsically, and also with a little bit of a The Hobbit thrown in bunch of dwarves and stuff like that. And then the sequel was Lion Horse Tree, which specifically the lion was to convey a sort of ripoff of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but it had no connection to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as such. But these stories tied on the idea that this fantasy world was directly connected to Earth, and in the 40s, this author had written these books. And it turns out the books were based on sort of dreams she had of this real place and real characters. Because I wanted to circle this back around to screenplays. One of the stories in here was a screenplay because it's set in Los Angeles, but involves a character who we've seen in a couple of those books named Perseverance. No, Perseverance is her name here. Perseverance coin. Her name when she's in Guardia, because that's how it kind of works, is you become one person when you're in the other. And your other version of you kind of sleepwalks through life while you're gone. Or disappears. There were different versions depending on the story. But she was this character called Leandris, who lives in the wild wood with the Belroth, who are these intelligent horses. Don't call them horses, though. They'll consider that racist. They could talk. And they came from a specific story idea I had had years earlier called Fugue. And that related to the opening pages from the beginning of James O'Barr's The Crow. He's having the dream with the horse. The crow said, don't look. The horse runs into the barbed wire and he wakes up. And I had this picture, and this was 
ooh, junior high, maybe, of this woman dreaming about this horse, and it talks and tells her to wake up. She wakes up and gets hit by a car. She's in modern Los Angeles and doesn't know where she is or what this is because she's not from an urban society with modern technology. And then eventually I wrote the screenplay, Fugue, where she is trying to make her way to the author of the books about Guardia to figure out how to go back, maybe? I haven't read the screenplay in a little while, but it still contains one of my favorite scenes I've written, which is the end of the story, and I'll spoil it here, because there's this private investigator, Anson Rathbone, who has been coming after her. She caused the death of one of his people, like one of his underlings, and this is partway through the last scene. She is at the author's house. The guy who's been trying to help her, I believe, has been killed along the way, and so we're here in the story. And I know I'm not talking much about the last syllable of recorded time today because that's my point is I'm getting into this thing with all this prep and trying to steal from all these other things that it keeps getting a delay and a delay and I'm starting to fear the idea that I might never get to the story. But also that's not necessarily the point. And it's not necessarily the point of this podcast. This podcast is about how you put a story together. And I'd love to have guests, by the way. If someone wants to come on and talk about structure, their writing, how they sit down to write, how they come up with ideas, that'd be cool. Answer. There's a lot more I could do to someone like her to be sure I get my way. A lot I can do to you, too. You killed one of my best men. Percy, I did not kill him. Anson, you pulled him into another world. Percy, and he died there. I did not do it. Anson, you couldn't just come quietly, could you? Percy, I do not do quietly anymore. Anson, this is why your father wants you dead if you won't go home. Percy. Then kill me this moment. I am not going back there. I cannot live like that. I cannot live like this. Anson, I was hoping for something better from you, Percy. Can't you at least beg a little? Percy, you know, in another reality, mayhap I was never beaten, whipped. Mayhap I was never chained to my bed. Mayhap I never had to run and you never killed Morty. Anson, right. Well, this is this reality. Percy, is it? Anson rolls his eyes. Percy, mayhap I never had reason to meet you. Mayhap I never even went to Guardia. Anson, or maybe that car killed you the other night. What's your point? Percy, some realities are better, stronger than others. Some exist only in our heads, in our books, our movies. Some are weak, only there for amusement. Some watch us. Some think they can control us, tell us what to do, how to live. Percy steps up onto a chair. Anson points his gun at her. Anson, get down. What are you doing? Percy, I am closing this. I am ending this. This is my life, my world, as much as it is your world or the world of my pair. Anson shoots. The shot hits Percy in the chest, a bright red spurt on her torn white blouse. Percy reaches up and as she falls, she grabs the edge of the screen and pulls at the edge of the film. Tears it down. It rips, blinding white light coming through the tear. The film burns on the projector. White, blinding light overtakes us. Then, gradually, back into focus, and Percy is there in the light. The blood is gone. She is in white, her skin pale. She looks right at us. Percy, you cannot just put me through all of this. She moves closer to us. Percy. I am not just some mindless fiction, some blank slate on which you can hang your hopes, your dreams, and your fears idly. 
She is quiet for a moment. Percy, you do not just get to sit there watching. She looks away for a second, then takes a deep breath and returns her attention to us. Percy, this may all just be a story for you, sitting there with your popcorn and your fountain drinks, but that does not mean it does not hurt. She pulls off her blouse. There are scars that wrap all the way around to the front, but she turns so we can see her back, the lacework of scars there. Percy, these scars are not just makeup to me. Every line hurt. Every line still hurts. Percy faces us. Percy, my pain is not for you to put in your memory with all the fictions you have read or seen. She is silent for some time. She moves closer. Percy, leave me alone. Go home. Live your own lives. She turns to leave. Percy, I do not have the strength to amuse you anymore. She walks off into the light, fading into the white of it. Off-center, the end fades in, then fades away. The credits roll, black on white. REGB 226-3. February 2003 is when I finished that. And I realized that I'm drifting to what I was searching for, the three row five cards of old ideas, and I found a few I was going to share, but I'll save them for next episode. Because I think part of the idea here is this show is not just about the screenplay I'm putting together, it's about the process, and in particular my process. And yours, if you're a writer and you want a guest, get in touch. Go to lemmingdrops.com, you'll find links to find me. Or search my name, Robert E.G. Black, on social media. It's interesting that Fugues like this, and I've written several first-person narrative stories. Demon Age of Catharsis was first-person, with Nikolai Jenison telling his story about the death of his twin sister and the discovery that he was the demon angel and what that means, how that puts him at the center of this giant conflict that he has no interest in. But also, coming back to the last syllable of recorded time, Connor's narration, I want to be sort of like this Percy take, is Connor knows he's in a story. Most of the time it's still treated like reality, but it's like he also knows there's a camera pointed at him and there's an audience watching. And when he's narrating, it's not always voiceover. Sometimes it's fourth wall breaking, talking to the camera. Who are you talking to? Hmm? Because the idea of stories that know they are stories fascinates me. It's something I've played with in D&D, my previous campaign, even a couple hints I've laid in Curse of Strahd. I like a fiction that can acknowledge that it's fiction and still work. And I think voiceover often inherently does that. And the artifice is okay to recognize as long as you make it work. I think it's why I have a pet peeve about voiceovers that are like three lines of explanation at the beginning of the movie and then they just go away. That's putting the artifice up front and it's distracting for me, more than it is attracting. It doesn't pull me in. It separates me from the story, and I just want it to end the voiceover, not the story. But when you have a good voiceover that lasts through the story, it's more like you're there with the character. You're experiencing it with them, and it gives you an easier in. I noticed recently some people on Twitter, in regards to a couple different things, were having trouble connecting with characters in stories that are adaptations. I'm like, if you can't connect, it's either you have trouble connecting or the show is a bad adaptation. It's not that you don't understand who the main character is because you haven't read the book. The story should still make it obvious. Connor's my main character. He's a bit like me, obviously. That's inevitable. But so is Des. Some of his worst impulses are going to have to come from me because I'm the writer. I'm the one who has to come up with the ideas. So is T. T might be even more like me than Connor is. I think I said that before. She's the more blatantly autistic, introverted one who wears graphic tees. She doesn't wear a lot of nerdy, comic book-related stuff like I might, but she wears a lot of band shirts. 
I have some of those too, but they're less of my collection than the others. So is Roe. Roe is this sort of impulsive mind to step away from regular society and live in a commune, give up on proper capitalism, and move on. And the cool thing about a time loop story, I made this argument in a media class once, where you're talking about classical Hollywood cinema and linear storytelling versus modern storytelling. And when I mentioned Groundhog Day in my blog, the teacher was like, oh, well, that clearly doesn't have a linear story. And he started to move on, and I interrupted him. I'm like, no, it does. It's Phil's story from start to finish. I don't want Connor's story to be as linear. His story is the story he's telling us, so he can tell it. He can leave stuff out until he wants to bring it up, till it matters. He's not telling it in order. He's telling the end of the story. The earlier stuff just comes up when it needs to. But another thing that teacher asked when we were talking about class, he was talking about whether or not there was a classist thing going on in Groundhog Day. I'm like, absolutely. And I won't credit this idea just to me. It came from, uh, I want to say, Doughton. I don't remember the name of the source offhand, but that was the author, I'm pretty sure. Made the argument that the person in a time loop, in this case Phil, has been removed from needs. He doesn't need a job. He doesn't need money. He doesn't need food. And so he's been removed from the classist struggle. And that's part of the point of the story and part of why I want to come around to something like Percy here in this end scene from Fugue, which talking directly to the audience, is Connor is in this story. He's stuck in this story as much as he's stuck in the loop. And he's telling it to us for a reason. And maybe this is just me getting older, me trying to still write when I haven't written regularly in a while, is that I have a point to the story. And I hope I can make it. The actual writing of the screenplay might have to wait till winter break now. I don't know. I'll know how busy the semester will be once I'm in it. Right now it's just, this is my last week of prep and I got a lot going on as I record this and as this episode comes out. If you're listening to it later, just know I'm a college professor, I'm a parent, a husband, a dungeon master, and a podcaster. There's always a lot going on, and that's all relative. I'm really good at filling up my extra time with things to do. Sometimes I fill up too much of my time, and some things get delayed. Doesn't mean I won't be making progress. I got a whole other notes file on my phone that's probably got another few thousand words, and I've got many more time loop things to rewatch and steal things from so that Connor can offer a lesson about life. What else is a time loop for? Cut. Perfect. We, uh... It's a past. Stuff that dreams are made of. You're still here? It's over, Johnny. It's over? It's over! Nothing is over! Go home. Nothing! You just don't turn it off! Go. 